Unbelievable. I think that's what you described last night um, with what everybody saw on TV in Notre Dame and Enrique hitting uh, what seemed like an improbable shot. But the reality was, I think all of us watching said, man, if you're if you're Mississippi State, don't let her get the basketball. Uh, an incredible Final Four. Columbus was special. I had a chance to go to the games on Friday. The atmosphere was awesome. The production of uh, the Final Four was, was great. And uh, four top seeds. Um, to have all four top seeds, uh, four great coaches in our game and uh, two overtime games uh, and then uh, one back and forth down to the wire I think made for maybe one of the best if not the best final four on the women's side um, you know I've, I've seen and uh, I think it was obviously great for the game of basketball hats off to Notre Dame um, you know just uh, amazing for for what they accomplished this year um, I think it's got to be one of the best coaching jobs um, of all time uh, Muffet uh, loses coach McGraw loses you know uh, four to five kids to injuries uh, I joked with some friends that the kids that she has sitting out could honestly uh, possibly be a final four team in themselves so uh, to be able to play with just about six to seven players um, for an entire tournament um, and 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 find ways to win was uh, something I think that, that adds to the lore of, of besides the the big time shots that were made but the other part about that is the teams that they went through uh, you know people forget they went through a really, really hot Oregon team. Uh, they obviously beat the undefeated uh, UConn Huskies, a motivated UConn Huskies, uh, a team that was uh, seeking vengeance for last year, and take them down and then advance to a championship game where all the stats said uh, they weren't going to win. Uh, there was was no chance for them to win. Everybody had beaten UConn in the last four times, uh, had lost. Uh, to come back after the emotional win that they had was going to uh, be an uphill climb. They got down 13 uh, in the first half, and uh, and to be able to rally in the way that they rallied, uh, that last you know minute um, of kick out three, uh, post up by Jackie Young, and then obviously the improbable shot by Arike. Um, just unbelievable job by Coach McGraw, and uh, uh, you know I just think it was it was a special special weekend for the for the game of women's basketball. Um, you're gonna hear a lot in the next couple of days and talk about the the shot. Um, I want to kind of you know pivot a little bit and talk about something that you know tonight's the men's game and you've got Michigan and Villanova and I've seen a lot of tweets and Jay Billis tweeted this morning that you know the women's game from a rules standpoint is so much further ahead than the men's game and, and I'll be honest with you having coached on both sides I couldn't agree more uh, the quarters to me break things up uh, it, it speeds up the game it creates um, three different opportunities for uh, end of shot clock situations until the fourth quarter and uh, to me the the foul reset is something that goes unnoticed you know you go in these games and maybe you run into some bad officiating or, or some poor play uh, across the board and, and you get in foul trouble or you get in the bonus you know right away well that resets at the end of the quarter and so I think it allows the uh, you know the best players to, to stay in the game I think it um, eliminates eliminates a free throw shooting contest and allows the players to decide the game. And then the last thing is the timeout advance. I'm such a big proponent of the timeout advance. I see people all the time, you know, they watch March Madness. They see a you know team miss a shot, dribble all the way to the other end of the floor and, uh, you know, throw up a prayer and goes in. And they, are, so they say, well, that wouldn't happen if you had timeout advance. Well, it may not happen. But the reality is if you look at that, the special Final Four that just took place, that timeout advance rule, absolutely came to the forefront. Uh, the Louisville game, Mississippi State does not win the game and 
doesn't have a chance to win the game if that doesn't happen. UConn's double comebacks don't happen if you don't have the timeout advance situation. And then obviously last night, um, you know, how you draw up plays also matters. We were talking about the game, and uh, I was talking with some friends as we were watching and, you know, you, you might get a little more even crafty at the end of the game, but Mississippi State had timeouts on their end. So if you're Notre Dame, you can't just, you know, throw it in and say, oh, well, you know, we threw it to the rim and then got tipped out of bounds. They've got to go full court. That timeout advances in the back of your mind. Uh, we've been on the wrong end of it uh, at IUPUI. In fact, we lost a championship game because of it, but I wouldn't change it. I think it's great for the game. And I really think uh, the men will will take a hard look at it because it's, it's made for some exciting in the game uh, situation. So a special Final Four is great to be in Columbus and, and learn from the convention. And uh, for me, the other highlight was this. Uh, we got to do our first interview with uh, the head coach of the Western Illinois Leathernecks, J.D. Gravina. Uh, we're excited about that. And uh, we get into a, a, lot of, a lot of neat topics um, from analytics to uh, you know his run to a championship. And uh, we even touch on his uh, coat tossing a little bit. So it, uh, it made for an exciting interview. And uh, I hope you'll enjoy. So without further ado, Coach J.D. Gravina. Our first ever podcast guest, one of my closest friends in coaching, J.D. Gravina, head coach of the Western Illinois Leathernecks. He's led one of the more impressive turnarounds, I think, in the country in the last five years. But he's been on quite the remarkable run the last two years, leading his team to the NCAA tournament last season, uh, winning a Summit League regular season and tournament championship, as well as this year taking down a ranked Stanford squad in their building. Uh, He plays a fun style of basketball. They score a lot of points. And he's been really creative uh, in the way that he's marketed his program. And so those are some of the things that we want to get into. So, J.D., thanks for joining us and welcome. AP, hey, it's great to be on the, the first ever podcast. I'm excited. Well, as you know, we're here at the Final Four for the convention. And, and just to get your thoughts, you know, what, what's, what do you look forward to most uh, in attending the convention? Honestly, I mean, the thing I look forward to the most is this, you know, having some interaction with uh, my peers and in, in the coaching world and really more, I guess, my friends, you know, um, getting to have a meal with you and some other people and talk basketball and life and players and stuff and, and kind of catch up is, is the highlight. And then obviously still learning, you know, I'm a coach who really believes in still learning. We've made significant, significant changes, even in just my time at Western. So I uh, tried to see things from some different coaches perspective. And I learned that both from casual conversations and from actually attending the uh, the talks. Well, I found, you know, I was on the men's side and the men's convention versus the women's conventions night and day. Women's convention is, is really organized and the on-court stuff is always good to see. But like you mentioned, being able to have the one-on-one discussions and really talk to some of the coaches behind the scenes and get maybe uh, maybe not the uh, cliche answers that you may get in, a, in an open setting. But one of the other things that's kind of looked forward to, and you did this last year and it was so well received, but you're going to give a, a presentation this year that I think from what I was told last year was packed and, and sold out. But you're going to talk about analytics. Give us kind of a preview of, of what that looks like and kind of how you've uh, utilized that uh, throughout your program. Yeah, the tough thing is, I mean, analytics is such a um, big field. I mean, there's actually an entire conventions on sports analytics. So uh, the fact that I've got, you know, a, a little over 30 minutes to, to try to break it down, it's going to be pretty basic. And the, the main thing I'm going to try to do is give some people kind of some must-do, must things that they have to be doing, especially as far as evaluating um, their teams and their individual players on their team. So using more of 
kind of a beyond the box score mentality using some of the metrics um, like instead of just looking at field goal percentage and three-point field goal percentage looking at your true shooting percentage looking at your efficiency ratings your percentage of assists and of course with rebounding you know even seven years ago I mean my team we looked at the box score we saw if we got out rebound or not and that was that and um, as we delved into it a little bit more we look a lot more at rebounding percentage obviously because you know we're a team that creates a lot of turnovers and every turnover you create is one less defensive rebound that you can get um if you know the other team's shooting it really well you're going to have less defensive rebounds so looking at those defensive rebounding percentages uh just some small small basic stuff like that then we're going to get into some more fun things um like playing kids with foul trouble i mean one thing that i'm really really big on is um you know not just automatically pulling a kid with two fouls at least i understand there's a lot more that goes into that decision um and so we're going to look at some things like that um how coaches normally get really conservative down the stretch you know you may be up six with five minutes to play and teams kind of take the air out of the ball and and how that may be a mistake and um, really it's funny when you look at analytics almost every analytical study says us coaches should be more aggressive in fact Mm -hmm. i've never ever seen one that that comes to the conclusion that we should be more conservative in our decisions so i and that's across the board that's football too the coaches should go for it way more on fourth down Mm -hmm. um but, you know, there's kind of a, a loss aversion, fear of, of messing up that I think makes us coaches sometimes take the simple play. Well, as you mentioned, I mean, it takes, you know, takes some courage. I think it takes some people getting outside of their box a little bit to be able to do that. So how do you use, you know, in, in your own meetings with your staff? Because I think one of the things that's difficult is not everybody understands the analytics. Um, you know, I had a young lady on staff who was phenomenal uh, with math and she would bring stuff to us at the end of the year. And honestly, I think about half of it made sense to me. The other half didn't. So how are you able to take those discussions? Are you teaching your uh, fellow assistants, you know, coaches, how to utilize that? Or are you just kind of taking, Hey, this is what I understand. And we'll give them bits and pieces. A little bit of both. I think with, again, the basics, those metrics, um, you know, I'm making sure our staff understands and, and even just simple things. And, I, and I'm guessing every coach is doing it, but looking at points per possession, as opposed to just total points, you know, it used to be back in when I was at Quincy, um, you know, we had a terrible reputation of the defensive team um, because we just played so fast. We gave up a lot of points and actually our points per possession back then, and, and you may have a hard time believing I was a good defensive coach, but uh, we had a good, a good defensive team. And back then our defensive points per possession was really good. So, you know, just some basic things like that. And um, that way, when the staff kind of, you know, questions me about our baseline out of bounds plays, our baseline out of bounds defense, we can really go and look at some numbers to back it up. But then there's also some things, I mean, especially as you get into more complex stuff with, um, you know, spacing, there's a thing called a convex hole, which I'm guessing you've never, never, never heard, heard of and probably don't want to. But, uh, it kind of gets into the geometry of spacing. And there's things like that that I just kind of use for myself. And I think my staff just trusts me like, okay, for the most part, he knows what he's doing. But even with our players, it's nice to be able to convince them of something. It's nice to be able to do a little self study and say, hey, when, when we hold the ball, when, when one person in possession holds the ball for two seconds or more, our points per possession is this. And when no one does, our points per possession is this. And those are usually really eye-opening stats. And to be honest, you can finagle them a little bit the way you want to, to, to help get your team confidence in what you're teaching. Either that or your discussions, your assistants are just like, we don't even know how to argue with him about this. We're just going to go with whatever he said. But <laughs> That'd probably be the case. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things you mentioned, you were at Quincy, uh, Division II school, uh, and the GLVC, uh, which I think the GLVC is, is you know, like a borderline, uh, you know, low Division One you know, uh, conference. They, it's very talented. Um, one of the things I looked at one year, you guys, I think, scored like 87 points per game. And ever since I've known you in the, in the 
the Summit League and coaching against you, I mean, your team's put up points, and that's kind of what they've been known for. And my question is, where did you develop your style of play? What were the influences? Is this something that you've always done, or is it kind of uh, grown over the years? Uh, it's been a slow process. It's funny. I started off as a really small town high school coach and thought I knew all the answers. Thought I, you know, I was, I was running this version of the triangle offense, you know, and I thought I was Phil Jackson and uh, basically just had a lot of failure. And I've always gone back to people that have asked, like, the biggest influence in my coaching career has definitely been failure, you know, both as a uh, high school coach, although we, we had a lot of success as well. And then my first year as a college coach is at a small, you know, NAI school. And um, I think we started off one and 12. So, you know, that makes you really rethink things. And what I started to notice is that whenever we were working on defense and our offense was just playing, we always played better offensively. And, you know, I, I hear this from a lot of coaches, like you're, you're working on the other team's scout mm. and your team just is dominating yep. playing the other team's offense. And um, But I noticed this kind of as a consistent pattern. And um, I, I started to kind of do little experiments at practice where I tell them we're working on defense and offense you just play and kind of watched how they played. And um, from there, that was kind of my, my aha moment my second year at McPherson of giving them a lot of freedom. I mean, we literally run – I call it an open gym offense. Mm -hmm. um, and then really when I got to Quincy, I started to kind of develop it a little bit more. Um, you know, we saw a lot of flare screens, which uh, some people have a hard time guarding, not your teams <laughs> as much, but, um, you know, really try to space out. And uh, we really read screens. I mean, that's what we spend most of our time with offensively, you know, making the defense, make a decision around the screen and, and kind of playing off that. So uh, it's been a, it's been a process. I think really the last three years here, it's kind of solidified into, into what we want. Um, and it's been fairly successful. But I tell my assistants, like every system, when, when it's going well, it looks great. When it's not, you know, you're wondering what the heck you're doing out there. And it, it takes a lot of um, – well, it, it's tough when things aren't going well because you can't just call out a set. You, you almost have less control over things, so it can be frustrating. Well, that brings me into my next comment. And we, we talked last night, and I asked you this at dinner, but I want to ask it on here as well is – you know, I, I view you, I, I think you have incredible patience and I think it's a, a strong suit of yours. Um, but we've talked in, in your motion when, when, and very rarely does this happen because you guys score so well, but you know, when your motion gets stagnant or bad shot selection, you know, we've talked over the years and we have phone conversations, um, throughout the year about our teams, but you know, how do you have that patience? Because I think that patience through some of those crazy shots. And I remember watching film on a couple of them and, you know, 40 foot bombs, uh, you know, and looking at you to go, okay, is he shaking his head? Is she coming out? And, you know, you just moved on. And I think that's one of the biggest things that gives your kids confidence. You know, have you always been able to do that? Is that something that's, you know, taking some time and, um, you know, just share a little bit about that. You know, I have, and I think I, I decided really early in my coaching career, even when I was an assistant coach at William Jewell, that I noticed when players started thinking about their shot selection, they usually got a lot worse, you know, when they second guess. I mean, you've even seen uh, sometimes a, a good shooter teams kind of will lay back on them and make them think, okay, I can shoot it every time. And now they have to make that decision to shoot instead of that reaction. And I, I want it to be kind of a reaction. So um, it's a little tough. and Maybe I, I hide it better. I, I do get frustrated with our shot selection some, but um, I just try to be really careful. I do talk to the kids about shot selection. Um, you know, you may not, they definitely won't come out of the game for mm -hmm. it. And you may not see it in, in public during the game, but um, I try to be really subtle and really careful. And it's the same thing with turnovers. Uh, we never talk about turnovers in our program. We've been a team that, for our pace, turns it over very little. Um, uh, 
two years ago, I think we were seventh in the nation, fewest turnovers committed. And at our pace, that's unbelievable. Part of it's because we chuck it up before we turn it over. But, um, you know, I, I just, I really wanted to be a, a confidence coach. And when we're playing at our best, we're taking some bad shots. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when we're not taking any bad shots, we're bad because mm-hmm. we're playing so passive. Sometimes we get over aggressive and we kind of get on tilt a little bit and then we start taking too many bad shots. So it's more about finding the balance of bad shots as opposed to trying to eliminate them. Well, it's always impressed me because I think that, you know, as, as I watch and I see, um, you know, your teams play, they do play with, with a lot of confidence. You know, the other thing that, that a lot of people may or may not realize, but you and I kind of both came into the league at the same time. I think I was just before you, but we both inherited some uh, really difficult situations and different circumstances. But um, you had quite a challenge, a, a Western Illinois program that had had some success in the past, but it had really fallen on hard times. And you come in and uh, it seemed like there was a gradual, uh, uh, you know, slow burn of, of the improvement, the improvement. You end up making the WBI and then we'll get into the big run that you made. But um, what do you see as the biggest challenge when you got there for the takeover? And was there ever a moment where you're like, okay, I, I, I think we've got it now. I think, I think the ship's you know, going to be, we're going to be all right. Man, that, that moment was pretty late in, in the process. Um, it was a challenge. You know, I really believed in when I got there, um, I didn't want to, I didn't cut any players, you know, I mean, our, our team wasn't the best, but we had kids that, you know, wanted to be there and wanted to, kind of get the momentum of the program. And I remember one thing that I told them at the beginning of the year is, we're probably not going to win the league this year. I said, but we're going to set the foundation. And when we do win the league, you know, I'm going to I'm gonna send you guys a piece of the net. And it was pretty cool to, to be able to do that. But um, so I really tried to have that mentality of, I, I think it's easy to get into a program like that and think, okay, I, we, got, we got to get rid of these players and bring in our own kids. And uh, we wanted to make the most of the players we have because those are going to be the kids talking to the recruits. And, you know, that, that first year not necessarily about wins and losses but getting some sort of momentum you know the, the kids are playing a better style they're turned over less they're they're more fun to watch you know something and uh that first year i'll never forget we ended up we got picked last in the league which back then there was 10 teams um i think we finished seventh and uh beat oral roberts in the conference tournament they were the two seed and that was one of my most rewarding wins as a coach ever you know in that first year and it would have been easy to give up on those kids but uh, the, the question about the process, it felt like it was always two steps forward and one step back. Um, we got a couple really good transfers in Tori Neiman and Marley Hall, and I had, both had to sit out a year, and Marley Hall ended up having plantar fasciitis and, and hardly played, ended up playing one year, pretty limited minutes because of injuries. And, and I mean, she was a type that I think could have been one of the best players in the conference. Uh, and then, of course, we get Ashley Luke, who has three tremendous years for us, uh, leaves a year early after she graduates to um, go get married and be with her boyfriend up in Green Bay. So, you know, it kind of felt like we kept getting close and we'd, we'd get knocked back. And um, even when we won that WBI game, I mean, we really snuck into that tournament. I mean, I think we had won 15 games that year. Um, but it was a great experience. I'm really thankful to the WBI because that kind of gave us some positive momentum on that year after Ashley left. And then um, it seemed like every year we had some, some significant turnover were able to take a step forward and you know that year after that year we lost Michelle Maher and Sophie Reichel who are our two all-conference players uh, but we had a couple transfers sitting out Morgan Bloomer and Olivia Brown and um, when when everyone got a little bit more time to have the ball in their hands when those two kids left just seemed like everyone got better and and Honestly, I, never, I didn't feel like we um, really kind of turned the corner on the program until about 
three quarters away through the conference season last year. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's crazy to think about because now it feels like we've really arrived, you know, mm-hmm. three straight years of postseason, two straight years of 20 wins, although we've got a pretty big rebuild on our hands now. But mm-hmm. um, it, it seems like we've arrived, but it really hadn't been that long since we kind of felt like, I don't know if we're ever going to be able to turn that corner. Well, I also think once you start to have that kind of success, um, you know, people now just kind of, you know, I'm sure the Western fans like will just expect we're going to get 20 wins next year. And, um, you know, they're used to it, but they forget the the kind of slow grind that it took to get there. And uh, I think one thing that with with coaches and, and, you know, I can speak for myself, but um, I think we all have self-doubt from time to time, some really lonely, you know, moments when you doubt, you know, okay, am I doing the right thing? Uh, you know, do we need to make wholesale changes? Is this thing ever going to turn the corner? Have you had some moments like that, you know, during the rebuild and during your coaching career? Because I know for me, you know, I can even picture some of the places, uh, you know, some of the teams that maybe I'd lost to in low moments and where you just, you know, you don't think you can pick yourself back up. And then, you know, you bounce back a day later and things kind of get going in the right direction. But have you had those moments? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think you're right. I think the good coaches have more doubt. And I mean, you even read about, you know, Gino and the struggles he has, you know, internally. And I I think that uh, that's really important for growth. You know, my biggest doubt was really always defensively. And especially since I had been at Western, like I said, at Quincy, my teams gave up a lot of points, but we're still pretty good defensive efficiency. And uh, at Western, I mean, we were straight bad. And I remember one day looking at the synergy stats at the end of the year, three years ago, um, and we were in the four percentile for our defensive points per possession. So, I mean, you know, there were 96% of the teams were better than us defensively. And I just thought we cannot get worse. Um, and that kind of led to us thinking outside the box and kind of creating a new defense. that was probably a big changing point for our program. Not that it's the answer all to defense but I think for the way we play in our system it works pretty well for us so um, that was a big moment of doubt but yeah it's crazy and one thing our team's done really well of is bounce back after losses like our record even in our seven years after losses is off the charts and um, it's crazy and I I don't want to talk too much about it, but one of those moments was after we lost to your team at home on our military appreciation mm-hmm. game. It was one of the, I thought, best experiences of the game. We had a great crowd. We had a 101-year-old vet sing the national anthem. Uh, we made ESPN twice that night. Bloomer hit that three-quarter yeah. court yeah. shot. You guys ended up, ended up beating us by two or three, and mm-hmm. it was, uh, and we were having a good year, but um, that was the second you guys swept us, and it was kind of that moment that, like, oh, we're not quite there yet. And, um, I remember trying to figure out what to do with the team. You know, we're sitting around my office and, you know, do we make them watch a film and really hammer them? And I actually watched a film and thought, man, we played pretty well. Mm-hmm. You know, you guys hit a ton of 15-footers, which is what our defense has given mm-hmm. up. And uh, so we ended up watching Survive in Advance, mm-hmm. you know, the story of the NC State team. And um, it really hit our team. For some reason, it just clicked with our team. I think part of it was, you know, one of our players had lost her mom to cancer, so that kind of the emotion of that mm-hmm. um, hit our team. But And then we made that run. So it was in that moment you talk about of just complete doubt, you know, losing sleep, mm-hmm. that, that we were able to turn it around and make that kind of magical run. Well, I want to go back to something you said about the defensive part of things because – you know, I I, I, I know because I played against you, you know, you guys offensively would, would score a lot of points. But, um, you know, you always knew early that you'd have opportunities on the defensive side of things. And um, you made that switch, you know, last year. And I remember watching it on film, even though, um, you know, we beat you early in the conference and then that game that you just mentioned. I remember the very first game that I saw it because I hadn't paid much attention until we got the conference. I remember thinking, 
okay, they're onto something here. And, and, you know, as I watched and as your team got better throughout the course of the year, I mean, you know, they're in passing lanes, it protects, you know, foul trouble, and it allows you to kind of play to your strengths. Clearly, I, you talked about the reason why you wanted to make a change. Uh, what led you specifically to that defense? And uh, what, what kind of has, what are some of the things that's kind of shifted now as you kind of go forward? Yeah, it's really evolved. It's been fun. It's been the most fun I've had, you know, coaching um, defense in my career. And um, the way it started, like we mentioned, is, I mean, just having absolutely nothing else to lose and, and be like, we could just sit in a 2-3 zone the whole time. We could do anything else and be better. Um, and we started looking around, and we had played a close scrimmage against Drake a couple years in a row. And, uh, you know, they were had gone to all zone. And they were, they're a similar team to us. They get a little bit more size, but, you know, they, they kind of recruit more towards the skill level mm-hmm. than the athleticism level. And, um, and they have had a lot of success. So we started watching what they were doing. And they were running like a point rover zone, uh, which I know the Marquette women had ran uh, kind of even eight, ten years ago. Um, and so I called Allison Pullman, uh, their assistant, and, and just started, you know, picking her brain a little bit about the zone. She took me through it. And that was kind of our starting point, And we changed it very significantly to the point where she probably doesn't even think it's just, you know the yeah. same zone but um we noticed that you know they still rebounded well out of it. their transition defense was really good out of it. something we always struggle with you know because we take a lot of long shots mm-hmm. i think um we're always struggle to rebound they create a lot of turnovers um so we we took that and went from there and then it's, it's evolved throughout the two years of time we kind of have two different ways we run it but it, it is based around a, a rover in the middle that can do all sorts of different rotations and then everything kind of plays off that and so sometimes we go forward raise which means like on a two guard front that forward will raise up and take the ball on a pass cross sometimes it's a rover raise where the rover would take it and um, we try to keep it really instinctive too, almost like offensively how our kids have a lot of flexibility and, and can play instinctively. Um, so we may guard the exact same rotation two different ways, and, and that seems to sometimes create problems. I think the more structured teams try to run against it, the harder time that's scoring. Uh, the teams that have learned, both the South Dakota teams this year, just kind of really you know move the ball, attack passing lanes or attack driving lanes like you should, made kickouts, and um, I, I think that made it a lot more of a challenge. But I love when teams. Try around something structured because it's pretty easy for us to adjust to it well the one thing i like about it is the way you know your kids are able to jump in passing lanes and they anticipate really well and it made it you know a lot more difficult just to kind of make the next rotation uh, especially when you know sometimes you don't see zone all the time the other thing when you're at our level that i some people may not know i mean you go to a big 10 level and they've got a marketer and they've got you know they've got everybody for every position at our level we're we're, we're doing everything and uh Tell us some of the things that you've done to kind of create interest in your program. I think you've done as good a job as anybody with some of that stuff, whether it was you mentioned the uh, veteran uh, that night. I mean, our kids were blown away by the uh, you know old guy singing uh, how cool that was. You know, you've given away certain things. Uh, share some of those things because I think anytime that people are listening, you know, they, they want to know what are, what are some different ideas that we can do. And I think you do as good a job as anybody with that. Yeah, I appreciate it. I mean, I, I think, you know, it starts with social media and, and nowadays everyone's so on board with social media and, and what you're finding is uh, the teams that are being a little more casual, a little bit more fun on social media, I think are, are having more success. Um, 
because now people are tired of seeing, you know, the same graphic with, you know, we've got a game this day. I mean, we put those out too, mm-hmm. um, but trying to try to do some different stuff. And we're in a pretty unique market. I mean, we've got a really good community that is all about our university. Um, so we've got a couple different groups we can really market to. Um, obviously, families. Uh, I people kind of joke that women's basketball, the, the fans are, you know, little kids and old people. And uh, we really try to try to market to that. You know, I do a, uh, every Monday I have a, a meeting with kind of our booster club where we fill them in on things that we've done throughout the week. And um, so, you know, we really just try to get out in the community, but to attract students, I think that's the hardest part. And we, and we have a good student body on campus. Um, so we've done a lot of giveaways and honestly, a lot of them have been, um, from our coaching staff, I mean, me and, and Coach Seth Minner, I mean, we are the marketing people, and we have a marketing department, but, um, you know, they've got a million things going, so we've just taken a lot of ownership of that and, and tried to do some things on our own, and uh, last year when we were making that run, I mean, every game, those last three or four games, we're giving out significant things. I mean, he and I both gave out $500 cash to a student, and I mean, that'll that'll bring the students that'll out of a chance to win that. We've uh, given away iPads and an Apple Watch and you know most of those things come donated for boosters and and uh, I found that people that donate money like to give it to something specific and know what it's going to and they can look and see a huge student crowd and know that you know their four hundred dollars to buy an Apple Watch is what brought that student crowd out. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know we're not uh, we're not above trying to bribe people to come <laughs> out to our games because we think once they come then they'll yeah. they'll continue to come and I, I, we got a little momentum with our crowd and then students enjoyed it and they continue to come back. There is something that you uh, are better than anybody else uh, in the country, in, and it's not even close. Um, you have, and, and it may be on the men's and women's side, you have the best jacket toss uh, in, in, in all of basketball. And, and let me break it down why. First and foremost, the speed with which you get the jacket off is borderline like you're at a Vegas David Copperfield uh, a show for how quickly it gets off. The hang time, uh, you get so much air time on it and then the distance. And so uh, walk me through uh, your your jacket toss, uh, t- typically what triggers it. And then if you have any memorable, because I mean, a couple times in our games, I would look down and I'd even catch myself laughing uh, at some of the tosses uh, that you've had over the years. So, so share with me a little bit about your, your epic jacket toss. Man, I mean, yeah, it used to be what I was known for. I mean, the people at Quincy and at Western would, you know, take pools on when I was going to throw the jacket. And I don't know where it came from. I, I you know, I have nothing to trace it to. Uh, just kind of happened one day and it kept happening but you know I guess it was two years ago they put in the rule that I mean it, it specifically says in the rule that if you throw your jacket it's a technical foul about the official so I actually do it a lot less you'd be disappointed yeah that's a now, our, <laughs> our crowd our media is pretty disappointed about it but uh, so now I can only do it when I'm mad at my players which is not quite as often yeah. as I get mad at the officials unfortunately as you know so um, I know I, I've had a couple where you know I've really drilled an assistant coach in the face with it because it's weird. I mean, I'm a, like you mentioned, I'm a pretty patient guy, you know, like with my kids, with my family, with my own team. But uh, it, it's so hard with officials, you know, <laughs> you just get so angry and uh, take it out on the old jacket. Yeah, you get worked up a little bit. But I think the funny part is, uh, you know, when you see the jacket tossing and, and I'll say you're close. You're not as good as Coach Katie. Coach Katie had. I mean, his were 
just violent, you know, jacket tosses. But the best part is seeing your assistants or the people behind the bench scramble to pick it up and put it on your chair as if like nothing happened. And, you know, it could borderline be a Saturday Night Live skit. So, well, we're going to take a quick break with uh, Coach J.D. Gravina. And when we come back, we're going to talk about their epic run to a championship uh, last year and and the process that went through that and uh, championship game and all the way to when they played Florida State uh, in the first round of the NCAA. So we'll be back. Here we are back with the head coach of the Western Illinois Leathernecks, J.D. Gravina. And, J.D., I want to get in and out of your championship run. Uh, what people may forget is you lost two all-league players the year before, and then you went on to go and win a regular season and a uh, Summit League regular season and a Summit League championship. When did you know or have an idea that you were going to have you know, a, a really good team? Because, again, you did lose those two players. I don't know if people thought it was going to be a complete rebuilding year because I think people knew you had some kids sitting out. But I'm not sure they expected for your team to make the run that they did. Yeah, I'm not sure our team expected to make the run that, that they did. And, and, I mean, it was so late that we knew we even had a chance. And even going into the final weekend, you know, we had to – I mean, the three of the last games we had to beat both South Dakota schools. Um you know, I still look back on it, a big part of it's luck. I mean, you, you got to just recognize kind of the luck factor that's involved. And I, I think our kids did a great job of working hard and doing everything they could to take advantage of, of you know, a good situation. But, um, you know, you look at uh, injuries throughout the league, I thought played a big part in it. And really, when we just started rolling, it was like we got so much confidence. Um, we weren't necessarily outplaying people. We just were so confident. We'd hit a couple shots down the stretch. We'd get a call. Um, I've never had a year that seemed to go our way. Mm. It seems like every year, you know, you start looking, you're like, oh, this team beat that team, and that just killed us. Oh, if they just could have won. And uh, last year, it was like everything went our way. You know, your, your team would beat South Dakota State. They lost that game at Omaha. You know, mm-hmm. some, uh, you know, you would lose a game, I think, to Oral Roberts. And it was like those things just didn't go our way, it seemed like, in the past. And, you uh, um, it, it was just kind of one of those those years where it started to roll. But I, I think the big thing was our kids really looked at, at losing those all-conference kids as an opportunity because they were high, high-volume shooters. I mm-hmm. mean, Sophie Reichel and Michelle Maher averaged like 40 shots between yeah. the two of them. I yeah. mean, it was unreal. So we knew kids like Emily Clemens were going to have the ball in their hands a lot more. And I, it was super, like, unknown. Like, we kept saying, are we going to be better? Are we going to be worse? We just we couldn't decide. And then even early in the year, we were winning a lot of games. But, I mean, they're close. You know, we uh, we were down four in the fourth quarter against UMKC. I mean, we beat SIUE uh, at the buzzer. Now, we did play Mizzou really close. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were... I thought fairly good till you guys beat them by 30 <laughs> that year. But, uh, um, you know, so, and we actually, I thought competed well against Marquette. We didn't shoot it well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, then I start I started to think like we have a chance to be good, but it never really felt like, you know, we have a chance to win this thing until literally until we did. Well, when you guys, and you mentioned at the beginning of the year, so we, we open up, I think with each other and we beat you, I think by 16 points. And then we meant, you mentioned we came to your place, which, you know, you want to try to hold serve at home. And, uh, and then as coaches, we always kind of look down the road and see what's next. And what's next for you was you still had both Dakota schools, you know, coming your way. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. I think you lost to South Dakota State at South Dakota State correct. that year. So, you know, these were some big time games. And as you mentioned, some stuff had to fall your way. But you got on that ride. You got on that momentum. Talk about that feeling. As you said, everything did kind of go your way. But, I mean, it, it, even as, as your friend watching from afar, 
not knowing that we were going to play in the championship, it just seemed like you guys had some kind of magic that, that really hadn't, hadn't taken place before. Yeah. I mean, that's honestly what it felt like. And it's, it's just crazy to go back and look at it because I can't explain it. And I'm a very analytical guy, as you know. So, you know, I want to look at, well, here's why we were good. And I've never had, I've never been less stressed and nervous as a coach, like going into the game, even big games, you know, playing South Dakota at home or at their place. Um, you know, I, I felt a, an excitement, which I normally feel, but usually you have that real nervous, you know, anxiety feeling as well. And I just didn't have it with that team. And I, I didn't feel like the team had it at all. It was just, it was, it was really weird where we felt like going into every game that we were going to win and you can't fake it. You know, that's the other thing. I, I think even this year at times it was like, okay, we got to show that we have that same belief in our team. Um, but that's something that almost just has to happen naturally. And the team has to feel, you can't just kind of fake that you have that, that belief because it, it, it doesn't work that way. So, um, and even going into the conference tournament, I mean, you know, we had, we had won the league. We were the one seed. I don't think anyone expected us two to play in the, the finals. I don't think anyone expected us to win it. Well, you guys go down the stretch and have two uh, big games as you beat South Dakota and South Dakota State down the stretch and uh, ended up winning a regular season title, which was a huge deal, um, you know, for your program. And then you go to the conference tournament. Um, you guys get to the championship game. Uh, we win an overtime game against South Dakota State. And, uh, you know, we play each other. Uh, you know, we're friends. Uh, I think both of us, and, and I can say this, you're still in the league, so you probably can't, but I think we were both thrilled it just wasn't the South Dakota Invitational anymore. And, you know, there was going to be a truly a neutral site, you know, game. And so just talk about what were your emotions like before, you know, I remember getting there. It's a, it's an, a quick turnaround. It's an early game. Uh, what were your emotions like heading into the game? Um, it, it was weird because you'd think I'd be super nervous, super stressed, and I wasn't. It, it was like I just still had that feeling. And, and that part of it was, you know, I think early on this team kind of accepted that, you know, we may not win the conference championship. You know, we may kind of have a – may not win the tournament championship. So it almost felt like there was nothing to lose, which is crazy because there's everything to lose, you know, maybe a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So um, – but I, I just – we really had that excitement. You know, we came off a really close win against Omaha, who uh, I thought was pretty good that year. But um, so it, it, that almost reaffirmed that feeling that, like, you know, if it's a close game, we're just going to make a play or two or, you know, get lucky on a play or two and, and win. And uh, I, I just – that confidence, I just – I can't even – I've never experienced anything like that in my coaching or playing career so that was that was pretty fun but we knew it was a huge challenge you know my big thing is let's be honest of course the girls were excited when you beat South Dakota State mm-hmm. because who wants to play in front of 7,000 mm-hmm. fans and I, and I thought the fact that you would beat us twice you know helped in our kids mind mm-hmm. you know that whole can't beat a team three times yeah. which statistically isn't necessarily the case yeah. but um, I think helps a little bit with that mental advantage and and I thought also that went into that uh, that luck, the, the feeling of almost like it was fate, mm-hmm. which I don't believe that fate controls basketball games. Yeah. But it, it almost felt like that with South Dakota losing and mm-hmm. then you guys beating South Dakota State because um, I think, you, you know, while we knew you would be a tough matchup, I don't think we could beat South Dakota State. I thought you guys had the matchup mm-hmm. that you could beat them there. So, you know, in that way, I, I think our girls will – Always be thankful to you and your yeah, team. Yeah, they can uh, send us a thank you card. But no, one, one uh, you know, I, I think sometimes you see stuff and, and as uh, 
fans and really don't get a behind the scenes look. And so I thought it'd be kind of cool to talk about the last, uh, you know, few minutes of that game and kind of what was the back and forth. And, um, you know, like you mentioned, we beat you twice during the regular season. And, uh, you know, I think we got up some and then we, we got down and we were in a lot of foul trouble. And um, late in the game, it looked like, you know, you guys had had pretty much control. And then we made a little run and we're, you know, we were down one and I got the ball and uh, Emily Clemens, you know, player of the year, uh, one of the best players, if not the best player to ever go through, you know, Western fouls our, our young lady. And now from being down one, you guys go down one. What, what's your thought process there? I mean, your best player makes that foul in a game where you really controlled most of the game. What's going through your head? Yeah, I, I honestly thought it was all unraveling. I mean, and it's weird because I talk about this confidence and how in a close game, you know, we know we're going to lose. And I don't know if the girls still believed at that point, but like it completely all fell apart for me. And I've never like had something. I mean, I, we were up, we were up four or five. Yeah, it I mean, was at one point, and I know you guys got a quick three off the backboard on the sideline play. Yeah. And then it almost felt like fate was against us. Mm-hmm. You know, Emily never misses a free throw, misses both free throws, mm-hmm. um, and then and then you know kind of gets aggressive on the ball and and fouls and. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I thought the dream was over. I mean, I remember sitting there, you know, normally you might be really fired up, like, hey, we can still win this yeah. game. What are we going to do? I remember sitting there kind of slouching on the bench, mm-hmm. you know, telling Coach Minner, like, it's hard to believe that it all came to an end that way in that yeah. last minute. Well, then you guys go down and we, you could call a timeout advance and uh, you run a play and we, we steal the ball. You have to foul. So now we're up three uh, with, with uh, two seconds left. And uh, two things I remember about that game. One, just – it seemed like forever with the officials going to the score thing. And, and ultimately that helped the, you know, the situation, but just remember like the momentum of the game. It was like, wow. Like, you know, you hear these announcers complain all the time until being in it. That was really my first experience. Like, man, this is taking forever. But the, the part that, that, you know, I wanted to go through is that last play you're down three and really uh, probably not tons of hope. I wouldn't think at that point um, I had, you know, my two all league guards had fouled out and uh, a lot of people have asked me, um, you know, we didn't foul you when the ball came in, you know, some of it was, there was only two, you know, two seconds on the clock, but the interesting thing that the game before and overtime against South Dakota state, we had tried to foul uh, in that same exact situation and completely whiffed and uh, a young lady went in and had a layup and one of our kids made a heroic play. And so, you know, we had gone through that year uh, we played at VCU. I think there were probably like four different games that came down to the last play, and and we're known for defense. And so we just said, you know what, we're going to live and die by our defense. And uh, what were you talking to your team about the timeout? What was your kind of last words to them as they went on the floor before that last play? Yeah, it was interesting. So, you know, you're kind of – I mean, some coaches have that play in their mind. They know they're going to run. And, and we had an idea. And the, the play before, you know, we – I definitely shouldn't have underestimated you as a coach because we ran the same play we've ran traditionally. And I, I actually, we had a little counter to it, but it, it didn't play out right. But, you know, you guys read that perfectly. So we kind of were running a counter off that play. But um, we thought about, you know, that there's a good chance they were going to foul. But I, I did think with 2.2 seconds, I mean, most teams are going to catch and shoot. So you get in a really dangerous spot if you foul. And uh, it, you're a good defensive team. And, you know, I, I'm a big believer, not that I would never foul in that situation, but that it would have to be perfect because I think a lot can go wrong. When you when you do it the right way, statistically, it's a good play, but a lot can go wrong when, you know, like you say, your girl whiffs a foul, she fouls a shooter, mm-hmm. um, something like that. So um, anyway, I'd drawn the play up to Michelle Farrow, mm-hmm. and uh, really in the last five seconds of timeout, I started thinking, you know, if she's not open – 
she's not as good, you know, making a shot fake dribble mm-hmm. as, as uh, T-Mac, Taylor Hanneman. And so uh, in the last five seconds, I switched who was going to take that shot. And uh, as, as we walked out, I told Taylor, I said, hey, 2.2 seconds, plenty of time to, you know, shot fake mm-hmm. and take two dribbles. And, of course, that ended up being kind of uh, – foreshadowing of what happened and um i just remember you know when she let that shot go i knew it was going in i mean you can hear me on our videos say you know that's good yeah well i mean i think you know one of the things as a coach i mean that was you know obviously a turning point moment for you guys because you went on to win in overtime and win the championship for us it was extremely deflating because i mean you know we were you know you could taste going to the ncaa tournament um you know i i think the harder part you know, if you're coaching this game long enough, you're going to experience some crazy things. And I watched later that year Northern Iowa and Drake played. And uh, the Northern Iowa uh, had guarded just about as well as you could guard. And the girl from Drake threw in a crazy shot. And it's like, as a coach, I think you lay your head down at night and go, hey, that was a wild shot. In our case, I was, you know, it was really tough because I felt like we didn't defend, uh, you know, as well. I mean, uh, you know, you want to try to keep a person between you and the basket. And, you know, I said to, to my staff when we got back in the locker room, I'm like, you know, the shot that she got off, and it was a credit to the play that you drew up, but the shot she got off, she's going to make that 50% of the time anyways. Um, and so we go into overtime. Uh, we had no shot in overtime, and we were, you know, we were toast at that point with the, with the number of fouls and the different things. But as the clock's ticking down, and, and you know now you're you've you've won it you've done something that may not even really have truly and and even for me i mean hadn't entered our mind of like this is this can happen what was it like when you knew that okay hey we're we're gonna win this thing yeah i mean it was it was emotional uh it was almost like a a little bit of a relief i mean you know just because i I want it so bad for the kids that that was the main thing And, and you know it's harder i mean it's harder to tell them how kind of impossible it is to to win the conference tournament and so you know they i think had their mindset on on winning it so i was i was just really happy for them honestly one of my first emotions was kind of i felt bad for you just because i had already experienced a few minutes ago having it and getting it taken away mm-hmm. uh, and then we got it again you know and so um i, I definitely and I, and I felt for your kids i mean i, I remember the face the, uh, my kale's face you mm-hmm. know and being upset and uh, again it goes back to like you said a, a couple plays here and there again we never as coaches think we get calls you know danielle lawrence was just starting to take over and gets <laughs> a you know a tough offensive foul call mm-hmm. um you know which i mean is it the difference in the game yeah absolutely it is and so um it was a lot of emotion but just like i remember like thinking we we did it mm-hmm. like i talk about how much i believe in this team but i don't know that i actually believed we would go to the NCAA yeah. tournament until until we got up you know eight or in overtime or whatever and mm-hmm. then uh, it kind of started sinking in and that was a good moment between me and coach Minter too you know mm-hmm. i mean Boy, when we came in, I mean, like we mentioned, we were a 300-plus RPI team. And I think when we got the job, it was like, oh, we can do this. We can yeah. get them going. And then after a couple of years, you think, okay, you know, can you compete with the South Dakota schools? Can you knock them off mm-hmm. um, in Sioux Falls? And even though we still didn't have to just to be able to win that tournament, it was it was a dream come true. And I don't I don't use that phrase mm-hmm. as cliche as some people do. Well, and you mentioned, I mean, it's it's stuff, the littlest things in those games matter. You mentioned, the, you know, the offensive foul on Danielle. I mean, if you watch that Kansas do game last weekend uh you know the the charge call that they called on on can you know duke was what i think the nation you know thought was shaky but you know that changed the landscape of the game but just the last five seconds of you saying hey we're going to change the you know we're not going to pharaoh we're going to go to t-mac and, and go that direction i mean little decisions like that always influence the game and it was an unbelievable run by you guys um you know for me as a coach i was obviously you know crushed in that moment but 
at the same time as I was shaking hands, it was like, you know, regardless, even I felt this way before the game, like if, if we're going to lose, you know, I was just happy it wasn't, you know, the, the Dakota schools. And, and, and it was nothing against those guys. I think that they do a great job. But, you know, there's a lot of advantages to be able to play in every single year in your backyard. And, and you know, um, I feel like we'd seen what the results were like when they had to come out to, you know, Western and come out to IUPUI. And, you know, it was just a challenge every year. So it was kind of neat to be able to, to to see you guys do that. And, and then, you know, I, I know you guys, you know, didn't, um, you know, win it this year, but you come back, you win at Stanford, a ranked team, um, and a historic coach, you know, probably a hall of fame coach discuss that experience because uh, I was watching the game online and, uh, you know, I thought for a moment they're late, they were going to kind of come back and then you guys kind of close the door. Yeah, it was crazy. Um, and the funny thing is like, we played really well first quarter, you know, getting off to a good start in those games is always so key. I mean, you've got to come out and, and get a six or seven point lead right from the jump. Um, and then we played a horrible second quarter. I think we scored two points in the second quarter and those might've been at the buzzer. Um, so to beat, a team like Stanford only scoring two points and we didn't hit a lot of three pointers, but we really spaced them out. And, you know, you talked about playing against some of these BCS schools. Um, you know, they're not used to playing as teams that are as small as us with all five kids that can play like a guard. Um, and, and, you know, they started off not, you know, Tara's really big on playing personnel and Emily had been just shooting it terrible this year, which Emily's a really good shooter. And uh, she had knocked down two or three threes early and that kind of changed the game. And then it, it did have a similar feel once we got in that fourth quarter and we were right there and kind of took a leap, took a little bit of a lead. It had a similar feel to the previous year where we kind of felt like we were going to win and mm-hmm. it just kind of everything went our way. They missed some open laps. You know, Brittany McPhee was out. I mean, there was a lot about that game. Um, but even with her out, I don't think, you know, anyone would have thought we would have, we would have won. They still have four McDonald's all American. Yeah. But I, I, I watched that game and I thought, I mean, I thought you were the better team. Um, you know, I mean, obviously there's Stanford, but even watching that, I mean, I think teams, you know, I worked for a guy and Ron Hunter at Georgia state. And, uh, we talked about this at dinner last night, but that zone, you know, we get out of conference and teams with the six, five, you know, post players for, you know, women, seven foot post players for men, uh, you know, they really struggled because, I think sometimes they just have that mentality like we're going to do what we do and it's been successful before. But if you don't adjust to something like that, it can make for a long night. And, and it looked to me late, uh, Stanford made some changes to what they did. But early in the year, they were just sticking with it. And, you know, obviously you guys were able to get the win. Yeah, and I think they were getting some good shots, you know, and just not able to make them. I mean, Smith probably missed, you know, six easy layups around the basket. I don't remember what they shot from the free throw line, but I think it was less than 50%. Mm-hmm. You know, so a lot of those things had to go our way but at the same time i mean usually in those games okay the last four minutes is close you know that that better team really takes over they start locking down d they start getting every rebound and that's where i thought you know uh, emily really stepped up taylor higginbotham stepped up huge in that game she's one of the kids like when we played florida state last year we played at stanford like you feel athletically can be on the court Mm -hmm. with those players so it's nice to even just have one kid that they can kind of compete athletically for rebounds and uh, it was fun. I mean, it, it's just, you know, like you never think when you come to Western Illinois, you're going to beat the 16th ranked team in the nation at their place. Um, so it, it made for a fun night out in California. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. So last thing I want to do here is uh, I've got some random questions, shorter answers, quicker, uh, kind of quick responses. But uh, first thing, best rule change to the women's game, worst rule change to the women's game in your mind? Uh, I think worst would be all the monitor reviews. Um, I think that the best rule change um, – 
I, I like the freedom of movement stuff just in general. I think it makes for a better game. Yeah, I agree. I, you know, worst rule change. I, they're at the monitor all the time, uh, and and it seems like they increase you know this every year. But the one I would add to the best rule change when it's called is the you know freedom of movement. I thought that um, you know my argument has been the last couple of years, and I thought this year was really well officiated. But you know they go late in the year and, and that it's not being called. And, you know, again, I, I just think you got to be consistent with it because it does, it opens up the game. It makes it more fun to watch. You're seeing high score games, but boy, we came down late in the year. Some of it was us, but some of it was, and we're scoring in the forties and fifties and we've been scoring the seventies all year long. Uh, but I agree. That's a, that's something that's benefited the league. Yeah. And I, and I think on that too, is that officials late, they don't want to, you know, call a lot of cheap fouls. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they want to kind of let the players play out, but then they end up affecting the game a little bit too. I mean, I thought Florida Gulf Coast against Mizzou in the first round, I mean, they were holding all over the place mm-hmm. and everything else. And they kind of cleaned it up in the second round. So um, I think that consistency is, is tough because you don't want to feel ticky-tack in the NCAA tournament. But yeah. at the same time, you want to stay consistent. Well, I was watching the Louisville-Oregon uh, State game, and I mean, Louisville would have pounded them either way, but their guard literally – had her hands just resting on the other team's point guard. I'm like, well, that that's a foul. You know, I mean, that person has three fouls in the first quarter if that game's played in December, you know. So, but I, I, th- I do think it's cleaned up the game. I think it's been something that's beneficial. Down to, uh, your team's down to under 10 seconds to go, and you get a stop. Attack, let them play it out, call timeout, drop a play. I'm a uh, let them play it out type of coach, which probably doesn't surprise you. Um, but you know, we do we will call timeout if nothing seems to be happening developing. You know, I just, I just think, it, and I'd like to go back and chart it to see statistically how teams do. But the eye test to me, and, and maybe it's because we don't run a lot of sets, so we don't run our sets great, mm-hmm. um, and we don't have that go-to play where we really think we can get a good shot. So I think we're better off kind of letting them play and, and trying to get something out of our motion. Yeah, I think it's one that, you know, I don't think there's an easy answer. I think sometimes, too, it depends. Like, you know, maybe you don't want them to be able to sub and get, get you know, their defensive lineup on the floor. And also, if you have somebody you trust to create, um, I think sometimes if you have a team that doesn't have those creators, then, you know, calling a timeout and maybe getting something where uh, you can get a specific shot. But I'm always curious about that. The interesting thing on that is analytically, statistically, you're better off going for a three when you're down two on that last possession than you are two. But uh, you know, most of us coaches are probably going to go for the two and try and tie it up. And I'll remember that next year when we play you guys. <laughs> uh, favorite coach uh, in the women's game and favorite coach in the men's game, college? Um, well, I would say Brad Stevens, the men's game. You know, I still consider him a college coach. Um, but favorite coach in the women's game, I probably would say Jeff Walls. Um, I, I, I love his demeanor. I, I like how his teams play. Uh, there's a few things about you know every coach that, that I don't like, um, but I, I just I really like how energetic and positive he is. He doesn't seem like he's a high stress, mm-hmm. you know, it's the end of the world type of coach, but he's still got energy. Yeah, about him. Well, I, I like Jeff a lot. Also, I would say you know for me in the women's game, I really like, and we we both know her, Amy Williams. You know, we had a chance to you know she was at South Dakota and she's gone on to Nebraska. And I think it speaks volumes for what kind of coach she is. I mean, she their second year loses her you know, best player who's eligible at Notre Dame right away. And uh, she goes and finishes third in the Big Ten. I mean, I just think that shows you, you know, what what kind of uh, coaching ability that, you know, she has. And, you know, I'd agree with Brad Stevens. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Brad Stevens and uh, Popovich and Belichick and, you know, um, you know, all those guys. 
transfers in our game uh, it's just it's starting to be ridiculous it's it's out of control the number that have taken place and now it sounds like we're about to turn it into the wild west where you know anybody can be eligible right away why do you think that we have so many transfers at this point um i think that we i think it goes back to the recruiting process and i'll I'll put a lot you know a lot of people are going to put it on oh kids these days they don't stick with their commitment you know they don't have immediate results they're going to transfer and i'm sure that's some of it um but i think first of all i think 15 is way too many to have on a roster i think that you know you're having even if you play nine that's still six kids sitting out um that, that aren't getting the play and that's what brings a lot of transfers to the game and I, and I th- but I think like kind of you know the goal in recruiting you're rolling out the red carpet you're telling them everything that they want to hear to get in there then they get here and now you're trying to coach them in order for them to be most successful and your team to be most successful and those two things you know are kind of a different mentality so I think trying to you know make sure you're finding kids a right fit and kids choosing programs based on the right fit um, it's, it would be hard to turn away a player that you know is really good because it's not the right fit and they won't be happy there. But at the end of the day, that may help your attention. Well, I agree with that. We got to drop the, the scholarships. I think you drop that down. I mean, that's 300 kids that are going to drop a level. And, and, and I think that helps with parity. Um, you know, also, I also think in this day and age, I mean, when I was being recruited, you were being recruited, you know, my family's the one that helped me. And, and, you know, I know not everybody's parents are always involved. Maybe it's a teacher or somebody, but it was always somebody that was really close with you and had your best interest. And I think now, I mean, I think part of the recruiting process is you're trying to figure out who's in this kid's ear and, and who is it that's going to be, you know, the decision maker. And, uh, you know, I've talked to some kids over the years for the reasons why, you know, they made the decisions they made. And, uh, you know, I think that's, that's increased as well. I also think like some of these kids, uh, that are offered, you know, after their freshman year of high school, I mean, you know, uh, how do you know what they're going to pan out? Like, how do you know their maturity level? How do you know, you know, what their, their character is going to be in, in, you know, three or four years. And, you know, it's, it's, it's amazed me the level of transfers. Obviously we've benefited from it. Um, and I know you have as well, but it just seems like when the statistics like one or two off every team are leaving, we got to look at something to kind of curtail that. And I agree hundred percent. And I think, and I've got some great relationships with some AU coaches, you know, as do you, but I, I think it used to be, you know, most of my conversations were with the kid, the family and the high school coach. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm embarrassed to say sometimes I barely talk to a high school coach anymore, mm-hmm. you know, but they, um, usually are, they haven't played the game enough that mm-hmm. they really are trying to kind of investigate things. And mm-hmm. I, I think there are uh, a significant number of AU coaches that just want their kids to go to the, you know, the highest tier program to make their program look good. And uh, I think the, the good ones, you know, they, they're looking for that right fit. And, and I, I think that um, the, the transfer thing is, is it's crazier on the men's side than it is on the women's side, mm-hmm. but uh, it, it, I think it's getting worse. Yeah, I knew I knew things were about to take a crazy turn when uh, I saw on, on on Twitter or Instagram a kid had photoshopped their final five uh, schools that they were gonna you know pick from, and I thought, well, that's you know that's where we're you know where we're heading uh, in, in today's day and age. Last question, I'll get you out of here on this, and appreciate you joining us today. Is you know you're a parent uh, uh, of two. 
um, and, and, you know, uh, talk about what that's like to, to have little kids around your program and, uh, have them, you know, with your team and, you know, any, any funny parenting, uh, stories that you have in regards to, uh, coaching and that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's been a game changer for me. I think in a good way. I think when you talked about turning points for our program, maybe me having a kid was one of them because boy, it puts things, things in perspective, you know, and you start to think of your players a little differently. Um, especially when you have a little girl, as you know, so, uh, it's been, it's been really great. So it's tough on my wife, you know, when we travel, but it, it helps. We have so much help from the community. You know, we have people come over and take care of our kids in the morning sometimes if I'm traveling that sort of thing and it's great having them around I think it helps my stress level they come to the conference tournament every year with the mother-in-law and you know before that I mean, we play that noon game and you know I'm swimming with my kids at 9 a.m. and uh, I, I think that kind of helps me stay a little bit relaxed um, you know as far as funny stories I mean it's just kind of the classic I mean everyone's going to have your kid at practice and she's a huge distraction and um, that sort of thing uh, when Meredith was pregnant with Marin, she came to the conference tournament. The bus had to pull over twice for her to throw up. So that was <laughs> kind of a kind of a tough one. But you know what? I mean, especially my daughter Marin just loves our team so much. Mm-hmm. When we play basketball, like at, you know, at our house, you know, she has to be Emily, mm-hmm. and you know, and so it's really neat to see kind of that she already has those role models. I think and, and really good kids for role models. Well, I've got an eighteen month old, and you know, we we. Uh, I bring her to practice every once in a while and uh, they caught a picture of us this year. She was on the side and, and uh, I thought she was still on the side and we were really just kind of walking through plays and uh, our trainer got a picture of us as she was standing out next to me and I looked down and I'm talking and she's just talking gibberish. But, you know, it's like she thought she was, uh, you know, she was coaching as well. But I think the other thing, too, is I'm sure you're the same way. Uh, I want to make sure we have good kids you know, when recruiting now, you know, I, I've always talked about we look for kids with good character. They're going to represent your families and your universities. And I said, but, you know, I want somebody that's going to uh, that I can trust and that I want, you know, my my kid to be around. And I've seen the pictures, you know, from your guys' road trips as well. So, well, J.D., I appreciate you joining us and I appreciate our friendship. And, you know, this is just seems like a continued conversation of the discussions we have over the course of the year. And uh, I have no doubt, uh, you know, Western Illinois is going to be. Uh, in good hands for quite a while and and you know i look forward next year for us to be able to come your way and then you guys will be back in indy so uh best of luck and again thank you uh for joining us thanks a lot i appreciate you having me on looking forward to uh to listen to the podcast moving forward be sure to subscribe to the podcast first ever guest jd gravina uh sign up on itunes uh and leave a review but uh once again thank you and uh until next time